Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Haitians attacked and herded like slaves by border police on horseback with whips. We'll feature an extended report. And Kathy Kelly reports back on the latest over-the-horizon mass murders by a U.S. drone and also on the dozens of killer drone attacks that came before it. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. Just this heads up, tomorrow we will spend the entire hour with uh, legendary filmmaker Oliver Stone, who's actually just completed a new documentary on JFK. You do not want to miss that. It's very interesting. But joining us right now is Walter Riley. He's an Oakland-based lawyer. He practices criminal defense, civil rights, and police misconduct. He grew up in the Jim Crow South and became an activist at a young age. He's worked with Black Lives Matter, and he works with the Haiti Action Committee. Walter Riley, it is good to have you back on Flashpoints. Thank you, Dennis. Well, let's start with the whips and the horseback. It sort of really did look like the 18th century and slave herding. It is outrageous, horrific. Um, The uh, um, horses pushing people back into the water. The video that I saw... uh, a uh, man on a horse knocked one man down into the water. Um, did nothing to help him get up. They don't get off the horse. And they are using. They're using whips. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, Border p- uh, Patrol says that they are using long rings. But whether it's a single whip or long rings, they are long enough to um, extend to the looks appears to the ground in which they're using to hit people and then running into people with a horse is just outrageous and horrific these are families these are people who are desperate to find some place of safety and they're crossing water and as they come out of the water they're being knocked back in um the u.s is uh, using horrific uh, abhorrent uh, methods to keep these haitians um fleeing the destitution out of uh, the U- out of the U.S. It's unprecedented, Dennis, other than the only other time when these mass expulsions have been used uh, was in uh, the early 90s when they used it against Haitians who were fleeing after Aristide was uh, removed from office with the help of U.S. military support. So... Um, they don't, they don't use these mass expulsions. People are coming here. They're not getting a hearing. They're not having a chance to even seek asylum. There's no interview, no discussion with people whether or not uh, they're, uh, they're entitled to use the immigration uh, 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 system as a setup. Um, a special uh, program to expel en masse Haitians, and they've been sent back to Haiti. Uh, some of them um, haven't been there for a decade or more. They have been in other countries in this hemisphere, in, in, in South America or Central America. So. You know, none of the corporate press is interested. You know, does anybody wonder how the Haitians ended up uh, in South America? What led to that? You know, why there are so many Haitians 
coming uh, north. There is no information. There is no background. Now, listen, Walter, right. I wanted to start with you. We're going to be covering this forever at this point because it's time to break the, uh, the myth open on this one that, you know, the U.S. Central Intelligence and other agencies have been using Haiti. They've been subverting democracy and using Haiti as a drug transshipment point for years to finance illegal operations against all their enemies like in Venezuela and on and on. Uh, but this is yes. not a myth. But I want to read to you, Walter, a little bit from today's New York Times fantasy. You know, with Kevin and I, who Kevin Pino, who, who's done this show with me so many times, have outed the the uh, the runners for the New York Times and other and Associated Press who are really connected to the United States government. But listen to this fantasy. This is just up on the New York Times. The Haitian immigrants had done well for themselves since leaving their country. Many more than a de many more years than a decade ago, they had built lives in Chile, Brazil, Panama. They had homes and cars. They had stable jobs and bank. They were bank tellers, welders, mine supervisors, gas station attendants. But they longed for the possibility of a better life in the United States under a president who had protected Haitians in the United. States from deportation. What's wrong with those paragraphs, Walter? Everything is wrong with it. Who's the president that has protected Haitians from deportations? Uh, what years are they talking about? They're talking about Obama, definitely. It didn't happen on the Bush. It didn't happen on the Clinton. Uh, didn't happen under uh, uh, Trump. So what are they talking about? The good jobs and great life that they're supposed to have. Why are people leaving those countries? Um, seeing that they had nothing left there. The downturn economically in, in uh, Brazil uh, after the economic downturn there left many folks destitute. They had to leave. That's why people started coming up here looking for a better life other places. They left Hayden because it's a failed economic system there and a failed government largely because the U.S. and its allies in France and Canada have destroyed the uh, any possibility for economic stability in, in Haiti and, or in, in political stability in Haiti. Having uh, removed Aristide twice, uh, removed their only democratically elected president twice, uh, and then installed their own puppets whose only job is to get themselves rich and fight each other in the ruling grouping uh, to gain more opportunity to exploit Haitians. It is a miserable life that has been organized ordained by the policies of the United States and Haiti. That's why people leave. That's why they go to other countries to try and find a, a, uh, a life for themselves. A interview after interview with Haitians who are trying to cross the border, uh, they will tell you that their lives in Brazil or in Chile or in these other places have been terrible. And that's why they're coming here. Their life was so great. That lie in the, uh, that the New York Times is uh, perpetuating with uh, would uh, mean that they would stay where they are. So it's amazing. I've been go on, go on, Walter. I, I've been monitoring the uh, you know all the corporate press, uh, and it is extraordinary. All the all the soft talk, you know, by all the what is it MS uh, DNC and CNN. Mm -hmm. All the talk uh, about uh, 
softness for the, how bad they felt about the kids from Central and South America and the kids in camps. But here you see what happens when it's black people whips exactly. and I, you know, they're whipping exactly. the people and they're whipping the horses, uh, you know, and it's it's back to the slave days. And I've been listening to these liberal commentators. They've been silent idiots on this story. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It is uh, so outrageous. And, and we're not finding that outrage in the corporate media. We're not finding it from the, uh, the liberal media. We're not finding it from so many people who should look at that and see what's happening, just the visual images of it, uh, and, and, and be uh, unable to accept it in, the, in, in this time, knowing what we all know about the history of slavery and racism in this country. Uh, all the uh, activities that we had last year around the murder of George Floyd, this is horrendous. You see... You know, a mile or more in these photographs or videos of people, uh, black people, trying to get across the water. And they're waiting in the water and they're being attacked by people on horses. And the uh, agency, government representatives are saying it's a, it is okay for these, for these things to occur. Uh, Ilhan Omar has, uh, has uh, denounced it, but we haven't seen it from any other folks. She called it a major human rights violation and a travesty. Yes, it is. congresswoman exactly. who knows something about being a refugee. Exactly, and and understand it. They are they are uh, they are hurting folks into uh, um, back into the water. They are hurting folks into these camps when they escape the water, and they are doing mass deportations. Now, it is it is not business as usual. Uh, to do mass deportations, women, uh, uh, pregnant women, people that who are ill, uh, people who have had difficulty uh, on the, the the migration up to the border, uh, the men who have uh, often been injured, young men who have worked and toiled in some mines or some uh, some uh, uh, despicable uh, exploitive work sites someplace in South America are trying to. Uh, find a better life. Others who left Haiti more recently because of the earthquake, because the government there cannot serve the people. And again, the problem is on the ground in Haiti. And that problem on the ground in Haiti is largely made by the U.S. and its uh, international allies. Uh, much of the media, uh, corporate media and liberal media, tends to blame the Haitians, where they're not up for developing a, their country. Uh, they are the poorest country in the hemisphere. Uh, not explaining what the what 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 it it means to say something like that they're poor because they've been exploited you take away a man's a person's job take away their family destroy their ability to be independent and then you say they just don't have motivation you know that's the racist trope that has been so much a part of our history and right now it is being used and and because people are willing to accept it too much uh, it's time Time for a, a totally different perspective about what we are living in. What we have seen in the last four years with Trump, uh, uh, the racism, the, uh, the, the economic privilege, the power that people are willing to, uh, to use against other folks uh, is something that has exposed what our society is all about, what our system of political, economic morality is about. And we're seeing those vestiges right now in the way this administration is treating these Haitians who are coming here. 
Um, it's a cynical ruse. Go on. I'm sorry. Right. Go on, please. Not because of control over what they were able to do, but because they are they are fleeing a system that has been set up in Haiti that they cannot participate in. And they're coming here, hoping to find uh, uh, allies, hoping to find a place of safety and refuge, uh, because that we have historically had so many people struggling in the United States uh, to defend ourselves, to fight racism, to find allies in various communities, to fight back as a working class against a ruling, oppressive system. And people have seen that. They come here looking for that, looking for that that opportunity for themselves. And uh, the government and the right wing and the liberal Democratic Party is not allowing that to happen, not, not allowing them to come and be part of our society where they can begin to develop the sense of humanity and, and, and dignity. Um, and this mass explosion is just unacceptable. I mean, where do we find it? Uh, other places. You can look at some of the most horrible periods in, in history from this nation or other nations, and this kind of mass expulsion is accepted. They it's, talk about the Taliban. They talk about the Taliban. The ta- I, I was, you know, I I cover all these stories. You know that, Walter. The Taliban. Did right. you see? I mean, I mean, you know, these are people on horseback whipping black people right. back into the water, whipping their own horses. Meanwhile, you got Mayorkas saying this is a this is justified under Article Forty Two. We're going to talk about that later. I I really want to have you on, Walter, because you've got firsthand knowledge. You were in Haiti for the two thousand and ten earthquake. Your life was on the line. People never recovered from that. And then there was a hurricane and a storm and destruction. Yeah. And it all follows the United States once again. U.S. intelligence turning that on. They hated Aristide. They hated the Haitians' people' uh, desperate desire to to self-determine their own lives. So they destroyed the country. They kidnapped their duly elected president. And this is what they left us with. And now horses whipping black people. I'm sorry. I'm I'm over the top. Talk about talk about what the country is like on the ground. Go on. I'm sorry. I was. I was. It's a straight line, Dennis. As you're saying, that's a straight line from what the U.S. has done on the ground in Haiti to this border uh, uh, problem situation here. Uh, I was there last in the spring of 2019, um, and uh, I was there at the time with Pierre uh, Lavoisier, Maxine Waters, Martin Prescott, who is uh, on the sister station from L.A. Uh, and uh, um, Maxine Waters, that I say, uh, we were there talking to the uh, folks who had been attacked uh, by representatives of the government, people who were part of the uh, 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 regimes that are exploiting the folks in Haiti. Their vile attacks and, 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 and mass murders in La Saline and other places trying to destroy the movement, the democratic movement of the people. And... Um, we interviewed folks who were experiencing tremendous brutality. Members of the families cut up into pieces and thrown on garbage uh, piles where the pigs and dogs ate them, um, where people's homes were burned down. And one of the perpetrators of this, this kinds of massacres was this, this guy who's now known as Barbecue, an ex-policeman, um, who uh, is using munitions and uh, travel equipment that uh, was sent to Haiti by the U.S. Now, they're claiming they don't know how it got to him. Uh, 
he's had demonstrations where he's claiming he's revolting. But what in fact it is, is enriching himself and helping to maintain the uh, position of the oligarchs. He supported Moïse, the president who was assassinated because there's a fight within that ruling group. And, uh, the U.S. is now uh, supporting this guy, Andre, who is also being considered as one of the people who probably uh, uh, plotted and participated in the uh, murder of Moïse because he was an opposite power. They're fighting among themselves, so who can exploit their masses more? But this guy, Barbecue, and, and, and then there are some folks in the U.S., in New York, who like to call themselves part of the uh, progressive movement, who are, who are supporting this guy, Barbecue, saying he's, he's a good guy. Uh, when in fact he's bragged on public media uh, platforms about killing people and destroying the movement. Uh, he's in control of gangs. Money and food and other resources can't move around in Port-au-Prince uh, and to the south of Haiti, most uh, horribly affected by the earthquake, because the gangs control everything. Uh, this guy, I, I can tell you, when I was in Haiti in 2019 with Maxine Waters, we had to go to the uh, embassy because she was a congressperson and uh, representative committee that was also responsible for determining how monies are being spent in Haiti. So we spoke with members at the at, at the U.S. embassy in Haiti, uh, and uh, the ambassador and the USAID person tried to tell us that these gangs, that these 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 so-called gangs, were uh, actually unconnected to the government. And they thought they were gangs. And I can remember having this right here at the table saying, these are not gangs. These are people who are being represented uh, and, and connected to the government. That people on the ground have been able to determine their, that from their phone calls that they are and hearing them talk to people while they're committing their atrocities. That they're talking to members of the, of the Haitian government, the government that is supported by the U.S. Uh, that they are people who have had connections with the Haitian police. And the Haitian police is being uh, funded by the U.S., trained by the U.S. Uh, and they want to try and claim that these people are not connected to the government. But in his conversation, as we were walking, the, the ambassador says, I agree. I know, trying for whatever reason to try and some, some, find some sense of unity with my argument, saying, yeah, we know these are not gangs. And we know they're connected to the government. But our official position is that these are these are these are gangs not connected to government. But the U.S. is funding them. They are using arms. They're using vehicles, armored vehicles, other vehicles to transport themselves. That are uh, vehicles that are funded and sent there by the by by the U.S. and international community. The U.S. is very much. You've said it, we have to say it more and more. It's it is 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 part and parcel of the destruction of the people in Haiti and the institutions in Haiti, the ability of people to control their own lives. The U.S. is very much a part of, of, of destroying all sense of the ability of people to find their dignity, to overcome their economic hardships, to build a better life. And it's keeping Haiti in the most destitute position. And in that position, people are leaving, as people are bound to do, to try and find a better life in other places. And that migration will stop when people have a chance for jobs, health care, and community in Haiti.
that's something that, that, that we are part of building and supporting in the grassroots movement by supporting organizations and, and, and efforts to try and build institutional uh, independence in Haiti, like the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund funds hospitals and programs uh, around medical care and programs around women's uh, health clinics, programs around schools. And we are funding uh, programs to um, ensure that their market women are able to sell their goods, building community organizations in the uh, seed uh, storage areas and water projects. This is the kind of things that help to build independent uh, on the ground work so that people can build a sense of dignity, power, uh, strength, institutions for democracy. And in that process, training to develop strong families. Uh, but we don't have the trillions of dollars that the uh, um, uh, oligarchs have. We don't have the money and power that the U.S. government has with its munitions and, and its control and its ability to determine the elections right now. Uh, and, you know. We're running out of time here. We're going to keep covering this story, Walter. But I, I do remember when I was in Haiti, I guess it was 1994, when Aristide had just come back. And I remember walking with him through City Soleil. The probably one of the poorest towns in the world, uh, and the throngs of people. He didn't need protection. Nobody could right. have ever hurt him. He was celebrated. He was loved. Uh, and the, this is what the United States does. Again, we're going to be going deeper and deeper. But before we let you go at this moment, Walter, you work with the Haiti Action Committee. I imagine you all are engaged uh, and active in trying to have some kind of counteract. Uh, is it a good thing to get in touch with the Haiti Action Committee? How, how can they do that? Yes, they can get in touch with the Haiti Action Committee. It's Haiti, net. It's the Haiti Action Committee, and people should be in touch. The uh, funding group is Haiti Emergency Relief Fund that I, I'm chair, uh, and um, so when we use uh, any funds that we get to to uh, help support the right now, money is going to help people uh, respond to and overcome the impact of the earthquake. Funding hospital work, we're still trying to, uh, we're still funding the building of a hospital in Haiti, uh, the educational institution at the Aristide Foundation for Democracy. Uh, we are very much a part of building the institution for democratic power and democratic control in Haiti. And it's growing. More and more people are being becoming involved in making sure that they can become civically involved with Haiti. But right now, we need people to rise up against this horrific images that, 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 that if we look for them on the internet, we can find of people being herded, being attacked by horses, men on horseback. Uh, the image uh, uh, is... It's, it's outrageous. To me, it's that's so it. much like seeing a noose. You know, that's the image that 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 we grew up with in the South. I worked in tobacco field as a as a teenager. A white man owned the tobacco field, and I worked as a day laborer in the tobacco field. And the owner rode around on a horseback. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking about the Edmund Pettys Bridge at this point. I'm thinking about the Edmund Pettys Bridge. Didn't they have some horses there, or was it just shotguns yes, and? They had horses, right? It's you know, <laughs> and, and cow prods and electric cow prods and everything else in the south, and that's the image that I get just looking in nineteen and two thousand twenty-one. You know, absolutely, more than 50 absolutely. Years since I faced those issues in the south, we're seeing this kind of guy with a cowboy hat on a horse ramming against people and chasing people and, and hitting people with with a, a leather strap. Uh, and, well, and um, people carrying babies. 
Okay, more to come, but uh, that's the voice of Walter Riley. Walter, you know any, we could use a film called Aristide. You know any filmmakers? Anyway, (laughs) we're going to, you know, please say hello to Boots for us. Uh, And, um, you know, I'd love to see that film made. Anyway, we're going to leave it right there for now. Uh, Walter Riley, Oakland lawyer, practices criminal defense, civil rights, and police misconduct. He grew up in the Jim Crow South and became an activist at a young age. Thank you, Walter. It's always great to have you on. Thank you, Dennis. You're so welcome. Stay safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about Haiti and this article. This article. Is it 42 or 24? I think my dyslexia is getting the best of me. Whenever I get really emotional, my dyslexia kicks in. But we'll figure it out. Stay with us. Walking Through the Darkness. I'm Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We continue talking about Haiti. We're joined by Attorney Nicole Phillips. She is director of Haitian, I believe she's the director of Haitian Bridge Alliance. Nicole Phillips, welcome back to Flashpoints. Hi, Dennis. Thank you. I'm the legal director of Haitian Bridge Alliance. And uh, it's really quite an honor to be back on your show, but also to be on the same show as Walter Riley. I'm a little intimidated to go right after him, but that was a great Oh, answer. no. You're great, and so is he. And we're going to bang this one home because I'm beside myself. Let me give you a shot at uh, uh, horseback, whips, into water. Your response? Human rights violation? I think that this is this is the image that perfectly encapsulates what is happening, and this is the image that should be outraging Americans and to to go to action. If 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 Americans can get President Trump to stop locking children in cages, then Americans can also get Pre- President Biden to stop this mass deportation of Haitians. Unbelievable. Let's talk about the deportation. Uh, I believe my dyslexia goes crazy when I get really angry, but I believe it's Article 42. It is. It's actually called Title 42. So tell us about that. Go on. Yeah, sure. So Title 42 is a health and safety code, um, part of the U.S. code. And the the President Trump used this um, as, as in order to, as a pretext, to be able to shut down the border without allowing asylum seekers to have the right to seek asylum. Um, and so this is actually a, um, 
you know, a, a, yeah, an arch- a plan to be able to block the, the border. Um, and so what happens, they just expel Haitians um, immediately. They put them into um, some kind of custody for a period of time, and then they expel them back to Haiti. So, so President Trump was doing that under um, the pretext of the COVID regime, or the, excuse me, the COVID pandemic. Um, and of course, there's actually health experts from around the country, including from Harvard, Yale, etc., have all said that you don't need to um, prevent asylum seekers from coming across the border. They're not the ones that are spreading COVID. And also you can just test them before you release them. So it's a false claim. It's a false pretext that the Biden, excuse me, that the Trump administration started um, and that now the Biden administration is furthering. So this is relevant because in this case, they are justifying expelling all of these people in the in the in the del rio area um without offering any of them the option to seek asylum which of course as walter mentioned violates our laws violates our domestic laws and our international obligations do you know how many they're now uh uh deporting hundreds a day 300, 400? How, how is this, how could this process be humane when they're deporting people back to Haiti who essentially, it isn't their country? Right, yeah. So yesterday they deported 327 individuals. About half of the people in the flight manifest that were deported were children, babies, small children. Um, so, you know, they haven't even been born in the United, excuse me, born in Haiti. Um, it is uh, pretty unconscionable to do this. The Biden administration back in May of this year found that the conditions in Haiti with the political violence that you've been reporting on, with the um, uh, political instability, that Haiti was unsafe and incapable of receiving Haitian nationals. So the, the U.S. government redesignated Haiti for temporary protected status, which essentially enjoins the ability to deport Haitians that arrived on U.S. soil. Since that time, Haiti's had an earthquake, a 7.2 earthquake. Since that time, the um, president's been assassinated and the political and violent situation has spiraled downward fast and is really, really um, unstable and dangerous. And yet, the Biden administration has seen it proper to start not only just deporting one plane a week, but to be deporting up to eight to 10 airplanes a week, which is what it has proposed. Now, the Office of National Migration, which is a government agency in Haiti, who is charged with receiving the deportation flights, they've said they can't receive all these people. They don't have the infrastructure. And they've asked for the the U.S. government to stop sending these deportation flights. Considering there isn't even really a government in Haiti right now, there's sort of a quasi-government, it's unclear, frankly, who is even consenting to receiving these deportation flights. It's clearly the U.S. government putting pressure on the Haitian government to accept them. Wow. 
You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. Did I say that already? We're speaking with Nicole Phillips. She is the legal director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and we're talking about uh, the latest brutalities against uh, the Haitians uh, who have now amassed on the border, uh, praying for a better life, trying to achieve a better life. Let me get you to respond to this New York Times, this beautiful New York Times paragraph today. The Haitian migrants had done well for themselves. Since leaving their country many more than a decade ago, they had built lives in Chile and Brazil and Panama. They had homes and cars. They had stable jobs as bank tellers, welders, mine supervisors, gas station attendants. But they longed for the possibility of a better life in the United States under a president who had, who had protected Haitians in the United States from deportation, and many believed they would relax the requirements. Tell us how you see those words. Does that sound like the truth to you? Uh, the, the, the reporter must have been speaking to people that different people than I've been speaking to. Um, I've interviewed um, hundreds of migrants who've made that journey that were previously living in Brazil or Chile. And every single one of them talks about anti-black xenophobia and racism against them, um, talks about... Um, that there were jobs in Brazil, but that after the Olympics, after the World Cup, the job market dried up, the immigration policies with Bolsonaro got worse, got tighter, and that threats and discrimination against them intensified, and it made them, forced them to leave Brazil. Many went to Chile, others from Haiti left Haiti because of the violence under the Jovenel Moise um, administration went to Chile, and Chile was even worse. Um, Chile was even more racist, and there are many, many stories I've heard of hospitals refusing to accept women who are in labor giving birth, forcing them to give labor out on the street. Um, stories of people um, sexually assaulted or other types of acts of violence and the police not agreeing to help them, not taking a report, not prosecuting the, the perpetrators. Um, and lots of employment discrimination, not being able to file for wage claims. I mean, this is there's such um, institutionalized, systematic discrimination against Haitian migrants there, as well as just one-on-one. -on -one, a lot of anecdotes that I've heard of um, sort of just racial animus and even hate crimes. That is what forced them, many of them, to leave. And and, and what that. What the problem with that then is if you've got to leave this country or you've you fled Haiti, you've got to leave there, where do you go? You can't go back to Haiti, right? And so they these individuals chose to, to, to go forward to the United States where they're hoping to join their families, um, where they're also hoping for what you, you know, say, they have the same needs and wants as you and I do. They want school for their children, they want safety, and they want security. It's a shocking moment, uh, and that it continues. And then you saw 
you sort of see the networks uh, lying. You know, I always think of um, uh, MSNBC as MSDNC because essentially it's mouthing uh, the Democrats. And whatever Biden does is good, couldn't be helped. It's a surprise. It's a surge. We didn't know. And you got Mayorkas, Homeland Security, or whatever the hell he's the head of, uh, saying these 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 folks have been misled. They need to go back to Haiti and wait uh, and do it right. What does he mean? You know, what would be the process for those folks who are being deported back now? What? Try and swim back? Yeah, no, it's awful. And, and, and I think one of the things, the good news is there are some Democratic Congress members that are breaking away and are calling Biden out. And they need to be showcased. And just today... Um, Ilan Omar, congressional member Ilan Omar on MSNBC did a press conference where she denounced that photo that you were just talking about with the whip. And, um, and not only did she denounce that and say, Biden, where are the humane immigration policies that you ran on that you said you were going to adopt? She also went a step further and said that part of the reason that Haitians are having to flee Haiti is because of U.S. foreign and economic policies in the country that have helped destroy the country as we know it today. Um, and so she, you know, lots of different congressional members we've been working with um, have been supporting an end to these deportations and are willing to um, step out and call out the Biden administration. There was a letter of over 50 congressional signatures to stop deportations that went out um, late last week that was headed by um, Representative Presley. So at least there are some members that are pushing the Biden administration and, and I'm hoping that they have some success. And what, what do you, th I mean, they are characterizing it as a major human rights violation, a travesty. Uh, and I believe Omar was talking about the uh, the way in which <laughs> the the United States complains about uh, Syrians fleeing that war, uh, but the, there is no parallel structure. And one, I, I hate to say this, but the Biden's policy is a perfect expression of Trump's phrase of uh, what is it i don't know what i can say uh we know what the the phrase was uh, all these uh, what oh god i'm afraid but horrible <laughs> descriptions of haitians but biden in this instance in this context is expanding that policy so this is a policy if i can track it back right it starts with clinton and his uh uh, Homeland Security, where the director creates a, a, a policy. The idea is if you make it tough enough for people fleeing violence in their homelands, often caused by U.S. politics, they won't come. Well, they were wrong about that. They just made it more and more dangerous. Then Obama picks up the policy and earns the label as Obama uh, as deporter in chief. And then here comes Trump to really open it up. And you think, oh, it's going to end there because here comes a Democrat. But now Biden puts the policy on steroids. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and it, it even goes to dates back even further than that from, to the 1970s when the U.S. government has a pattern like they did with the Duvalier regime. They support 
and they undermine the political stability of a country like Haiti. So the Duvaliers, the U.S. government supported the Duvaliers. We know this. And then that creates the root causes problem of why we had so many hundreds of boats leaving Haiti, fleeing the Duvalier regime. And then the U.S. in response introduced takes these boats and repatriates everybody, brings them all back and doesn't even allow them to seek asylum. We do everything to keep, we we interfere in the politics, we create the reasons for the migration, and then we receive, we refuse to allow these refugees onto our soil. And this started happening in the 70s, this happened in the 80s. In 1981, the immigration and carceral system as we know it was created in order to house Haitians. Guantanamo Bay in the early 90s was opened up as a detention facility to incarcerate Haitians. And then fast forward to 2006, excuse me, 2016, the Obama administration started a policy called the metering policy, which forced, which essentially closed the border and forced people to take a number in order to filed for asylum in the U.S., but often those numbers were never called. This was in response to Haitians coming across the U.S.-Mexico border starting in that time. So this is that that, that photo of, of the, the whip, and for, for your listeners, if you haven't seen it, I really recommend you, you see it. You can see it on our Twitter page, which is at Haitian Bridge. And, and that whip-cracking photo, it is symbolic of the anti-Black racism that is embedded in Haitian immigration policy, in Haitian, excuse me, U.S. immigration policy, in U.S. foreign policy, because this is where they dovetail. Um, and so this is what is behind these, the, the situation that we're having, this humanitarian and legal crisis, which, as you say, has been perpetuated by... The Clintons, the Bushes, the Obamas, the Trumps, and the Bidens. You know, I, I, there, there, there's uh, one of the reporters for MS uh, DNC, uh, Jacob Soberoff. He's, he's like so soft and so sympathetic and everybody's been celebrating his reported about people fleeing the violence we created in Central America. But as soon as this comes up, he and the rest of his crew uh, are uh, are defending Biden and Mayorkas. What would you like to see Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security? Is he the head of Homeland Security? What should he really be doing here? How can, I, he says there's going to be an investigation into the whipping. Hmm. I mean, I think this is emblematic of the policies and what's behind the treatment of these migrants and the inhumanity um, of the treatment of of the of these individuals of these asylum seekers who are so desperate nobody wants their kids to live in that camp nobody does you only get there because you're desperate and this is your only hope and that's what we need to be considering considering that Mayorkas himself was a refugee and asylum seeker um you know, from Cuba, and his, when his parents was from, um, uh, uh, fled the um, the Holocaust, he of all people understands this. And and so, what needs to happen is that the Title Forty Two export expulsions, deportations of Haitians needs to stop. He needs to call off the mass 
deportations. Um, not only are they violating, plainly violating domestic law, they're violating international law, but there's also a court order that will enjoin um, the deportation in particular of families um, effective in about a 10-day period. So the courts have already said this is illegal and they've been given, they gave them a two-week notice to stop the practice. And so what does the Biden administration do? What is Secretary Mayorka says they turn around and deport as many families and children as they can in this two-week period. Um, so they need to stop these deportations. And it is very possible to uh, process these individuals, screen them for asylum. They should humanitarian parole them in. This is the same situation. This is a similar situation to what's happening in Afghanistan, where people are being paroled in. They should be bringing people in. Um, who are at the border, screening them for asylum, releasing them. They don't need to incarcerate them, releasing them um, to their loved ones or family. Most of these people have family members. That's why they've come to the United States. Let them go be with their families. Um, this is going to be a much more humane. This is a legal response to this humanitarian crisis. And it's doable. Oh, this is something it's that is doable. absolutely administratively feasible for them to claim it's not. They are making excuses. They're lying. Well, somebody should push them into the water and see how it feels to have a whip when you've already fled and been tortured and hurt and forced out of your homeland. Wow. Anyway, we're going to leave it right there, but Nicole Phillips, I hope you will keep us posted. We're going to do as much as we can on this story. Uh, how do people get more information from the legal, uh, from the Haitian Bridge Alliance, where you're the legal director? Thanks for asking. The best way to, to follow us on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, which, which is just at Haitian Bridge. Um, you can also follow me at Buddhist Lawyer. Um, and, and send a send a direct message through any of those um, forums. We'd love to hear from people. All right, thank you. And and if, if there's a family in the community who's who's struggling to get somebody uh, to save somebody who's in that mess now, is there? What do you suggest? Well, um, you're welcome to call us. Uh, we're actually Haitian Bridge Alliance is the only organization in the ground on the ground in Del, in in. Um, uh, in the Del Rio area that has Creole-speaking capacity. There just aren't organizations there. So um, feel free. You know, we have an Act Blue campaign. We're seeking donations to be able to provide services. I mean, one last small anecdote was our executive director, Geraldine Joseph, who's in Del Rio right now. She um, met a, a mother with a baby that looked very, very sick. Um, and she told the mother, that baby, you can't get on that bus. You, that baby needs to go to the hospital. Um, and so, Geraldine, our staff, took the baby to the hospital. The baby was so sick that it needed to be airlifted to San Antonio Hospital to be treated unless it would die. So this gives you an example of, A, the work that we're doing, but also on a legal basis and a humanitarian basis, but also the desperate situation of this population that today was supposed to be 105 degrees and they're living under these deplorable conditions. Unbelievable. Uh, Nicole Phillips, thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be calling on you again and again. Stay safe. It's always a pleasure, Dennis. Thank you so much. All right. My pleasure, too. But this story is a disaster and unbelievably um, 
troubling. We're not going to uh, note to my engineer, we're not going to take a musical break because we're running late. Uh, so I hope we have uh, Kathy Kelly on the line. Uh, she's a peace activist who spent some 30 trips to Afghanistan. Uh, and she is uh, really, she's a whistleblower about U.S. Uh, policy and co-coordinator of uh, bandkillerjones.org. Kathy, welcome back to Flashpoints. Oh, thank you, Dennis, for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. And you reminded me as we were talking earlier, uh, I wanted you to come on and talk about the latest uh, anonymous mass murder by a drone pilot who probably then went home and sat down uh, to a nice dinner with his family. And you pointed out, what are you talking about drone attack? It's attacks. They've never stopped. Do you want to talk about this? Mm. Well, certainly right now, the uh, Ahmadi family which so tragically lost 10 family members, three of whom were little children, uh, ought to be focused on by international journalists. And the many, many, many stories that have um, been filed are so, so, so important. But, you know, we we also have to remind ourselves that, that prior to this attack, this slaughter of innocence, sacrifice of children, there were many, many others where there weren't international news agencies that could go to the scene and do coverage. Uh, yesterday was two years to the day of an attack on a group of farmers, laborers, uh, migrant laborers with their children who were in a pine nut forest and they were trying to take their rest after a long day and they lit fires to boil tea. And even though the owner of the Pine Nut Forest had notified uh, the governor and the governor had notified the United States authorities and the military, a drone was fired right into that group, killing 30 people, badly maiming 40 people. I can't imagine that they had ambulances or ways to stitch people up or give physical therapy or bandage, just a, just a disaster. And so... We, we need so much to hear from the survivors in Kabul of the attack on Ahmed Zamari Ahmad, who was an engineer. He worked for 16 years for a U.S. charity, and he and his family had their bags packed. They were waiting to go to the airport and be evacuated out of Kabul because they had worked with a, a charitable organization just two days beforehand. He had delivered food to starving people in a refugee camp. And, you know, they had their SIV forms. They were waiting to go to the United States. And instead, the United States sent a rocket laden with explosives into their home and accused him of having been driving explosives around in his car. And, and, and the people who were tracking him said, we saw how gingerly he and others placed their containers in the back of his car and they convinced themselves the u.s drone operator kill team whatever that was watching this video that these must be explosives they were water canisters he had gone to pick up a computer from his boss's office he had dropped different people off at different places and he bought water back because like so many other homes in kabul he didn't have access to water so those were water canisters. It's unbelievable. 
and this this notion of over the horizon. Just say a little bit of how that structure works. It is true that these drone pilots can kill a whole bunch of people and then not even know who they killed. We don't know who that drone pilot was, who that mass murderer was. Do we? Do we know the names of the people who were mass murdered? What do we know about this? I mean, in this case, yes, we can say the names of the children, eight-year-old Farzad and uh, little girls, uh, Sumaya, uh, Armin, and Ben Yemen. Um, they were three small children. We know uh, that uh, Samia the, the, was waiting to marry Ahmed Nasser, and he worked with, with the U.S. military. Uh, her first thought was that the Taliban must have waged this attack, and then she realized it was the U.S. And she and other women are interviewed on a Muslim TV news video, and, and the text to that is very, very compelling. So, yes, we can know about the victims, unusually this time, but who launched the... Um, you know, the, the, right now the United States has, in various bases in uh, Qatar, in Kuwait, in the United Arab Emirates, um, the aircraft, manned aircraft, and the unmanned aircraft, the drones, ready to lift off. But they're operated, those drones are operated by people working in places like Creech Air Force Base in Nevada or Beale Air Force Base in California or in Syracuse, the Hancock Base or in Niagara Falls. There's a, outside of Buffalo, the Niagara Base. Um, it, outside of Madison, there's a Vokefield Base. There's one in Des Moines. There's one in Davis-Monaghan in Arizona. But, you know, we don't know by any means which one of these bases, Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri is another big one, is, is actually responsible. And and this is the kind of information we should know. And we also should recognize that no matter how sophisticated the drone and the apparatus operating it are, they cannot tell the difference between a blob and a person unless the drone is flying at a very low altitude. And so, um, you know, how could they say, well, we weren't. We didn't know there were children, but they were sure that those were explosives going into the trunk of the car. It's, it, it's a pernicious and a wicked program of uh, conjecture about who is being killed. And Daniel Hale is in prison now because he told the truth. He's a whistleblower. And he said, look, 90% of the time in for a five-month program, where he was able to document the government coverage. It was called Operation Haymaker in Afghanistan. 90% of the time, the people they killed weren't the intended victims. They were... 90%, you said. 90%? 90%. 9 out of 10 victims weren't even the people they were trying to hit. That's right. And Daniel Hale is now serving 45 months in prison. But the people who... You know, concoct these programs, who design these weapons, who fire these weapons. They they are never brought to accountability before, uh, like a truth and justice commission or a court of law or Senate testimony. They get a, they get you know if they're higher ups, they get appointments to even being more high up. You know, they become generals or they become CEOs of these um, military contracting companies. We've got to hold them accountable. Wow. And, of course, p- 
part of the other side of this is that these people, in a way, are made crazy by the violence they've committed. And they, we don't know what they will do or the kind of impact that it has when you like. So this this killer who killed these beautiful these this this beautiful family and these beautiful children. He know we don't know who he is, but he knows he's the mass murderer. You think he feels okay? Well, and, you know, I think we should, I should take a step back and say, look, I'm part of the society that pays people to, as you say, inflict moral injury on themselves. They are, they get stuck with terrible jobs. And, uh, you know, one time I, I went with a loaf of bread to the commander of the Whiteman Air Force Base. I wanted to talk to him and I had a letter and I wanted to know if somebody, if somebody wants to quit their job, what working in one of these terrible capacities what what can they do and how can you assure that they're not hitting civilians and um well i i wasn't allowed to deliver my letter or my loaf of bread i was put in jail for three months and that's okay i i'm i i feel sometimes that that's the right place to be in a society like ours where killing always has the upper hand yeah we're all in this uh, invisible prison when we support the money that comes out of the U.S. supports this kind of terrible murder. We, we certainly have seen an unbelievable amount of soldiers pushed into these terrible wars or doing this kind of work, taking their own lives. I'm not excusing them. I'm not excusing them, but it hurts all around. It hurts all and, around. And Dennis, on, we should please. also acknowledge that the United States Air Force in June asked for $10 billion to fund their over-the-horizon campaign to situate these unmanned drones and the attack aircraft in other countries, and they'll get it. And meanwhile, think how that $10 billion could be spent while we are freezing the assets of the Taliban government. I'm, I'm, with many other people, very upset that the Taliban now control the lives of people in Afghanistan. But don't blame the poor and starve them. We ought to be doing everything we can to pay reparations to people in Afghanistan and do that through credible agencies within the United Nations. But also eventually the United States is going to have to unfreeze those assets and allow people to go back to work and be paid in Afghanistan and make sure that people don't starve. They're in an economic freefall facing an economic catastrophe. And these are people who wished us no harm, did nothing no to harm, harm us, and have borne this- 20 years of our warfare. Unbelievable. Kathy Kelly, I want to thank you. I want to tell people that you now uh, work with uh, a very important organization, BanKillerDrones.org. You're the co-coordinator, BanKillerDrones.org. I urge people to check out the site uh, and to learn more about the incredible work that you do. Thanks, uh, Kathy, for uh, spending this time with us again. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis. All right, and all best to your listeners. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that does wrap it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Do you think I'm on fire? We're just getting started on this. Stay tuned.
wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.